having me back. Um, it's a blessing. Uh, I was surprised uh, when y'all call him Brandon, I call him Pastor Famo. Pastor Famo texted me and asked me to come preach again. I was like, wow, I am moving up on Pastor Rackett's list. <laughs> yeah, praise the Lord for that. Huh? We're seeing abounds. Grace does much more abounds. Right. So our text is coming from Romans chapter 10. Um, let's get that reading out of the way. Why don't you stand with me as we read from verses 9, 10, and 13. Let me know if you're there. All right. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You may be seated. Father in heaven, I thank you and I praise you for your word. Uh, Lord God, um, use me today to love you back because you told Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Uh, it is my passion. Um, it is what you've created me to do. Uh, and so use me today. Apart from you, I am nothing. And I don't want to be. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay. All right. So Romans 10, 9, 10, and verse 13. The title of this sermon is The Family Business Part 2. If you all remember the first time, uh, it was Onessa Mess, The Family Business. And now the family business part two. And the reason why it's titled that is because we need to know, we need to know what we're doing when we're witnessing the people. We need to know what we're doing. Um, there are many methods that we use to share the gospel, right? And we go out and evangelize Pete and, um, and David. We go out and evangelize, and, and we do that at our church as well, in our community. And uh, we use things like the four spiritual laws, that, that little booklet. And, uh, and then most people like to use their own testimony, right? And then you throw the gospel in there with your testimony and how the Lord saved you. I always tell people, be careful with that one, because you don't want the person that you're talking to to think that God is going to bless them the same exact way he blessed you. It's called selling Jesus. Have you ever sold them before? I have. I said, yeah, come to Jesus and this, 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 this. And that, 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 that. And guess what? That's wrong, 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 wrong. That is not how you handle the family business. We're not to sell Jesus to people. It's the work of the spirit. And that's what we're going to discuss today. And, 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 you know, this rocked my world. So I know it's going to rock some of some of y'all's world when you 
hear what I'm about to say about Romans 9, 10, and 13. And mainly, what I'm going to do today is try to show you from the scripture and other things, but try to show you from the scripture that um, that's not what Paul's talking about. He is not saying, he is not saying that we should tell people, confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. Mm. What you talking about, Brad Johnson? Right, that, that sinner's prayer is not biblical. It's not. When you look around and you see the empty chairs in here, part of the reason why is because we have made false converts. Yeah, we have. And we think, hey, it's so simple. And it is, it is. And I'm going to show you why Paul is oversimplifying this. I'm going to show you why. But um, he is not saying that this is a formula. He's not saying that. We've been wrong about that. I've been wrong about that. And it's time for us to know the right way. One of my favorite methods is the Roman road. Who uses that? Right? I love the Roman road, right? Romans 3.23, I'm witness to somebody. You tell them that we all fall short of the glory of God, that everybody's a sinner. I need to let you know because in presenting the gospel, you got to present the bad news first. That's what makes the good news good news. So in presenting the bad news, you know what? We all fall short, right? And then I love Romans 5, 8 through 10, where it talks about uh, while we were still enemies, God put forth his love for us, right? At the right time, Christ died for us. We were his enemies. We were sinners, and he died for us. It tells us about our condition. And then Romans 6, 23 says um, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right, as Paul strengthens and develops his argument for the gospel of grace. And that's what he's doing. And so then we jump from that and we jump right to Romans 10. We're excited. We jump right to Romans 10. And that's where we messed up. We did good at Romans 3, 23, and Romans 5. And we did good at Romans 6, 23. But then when you jump to Romans 10, you just messed up. You just messed up. Sorry. Thanks. Because um, Paul's whole argument, as we're going to see, is, is a gospel of grace. That's what he keeps saying. And so, why would Paul, I want you to think about this. Why would Paul, in describing the gospel of grace and his argument against the righteousness that can be attained by keeping the law, that's what he does in these, in these verses, uh, in these chapters, why would he tell you to do something? Why would Paul, in preaching of his gospel of grace, tell you that you have to do something to be saved? That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Let's dive in. So um, I'm going to give you a couple of um, exegetical rules that I've learned. That when you're interpreting, when you're in, when you're interpreting the letters or the epistles, you have to interpret them understanding that they're occasional, they are situational, that there is a reason why the apostle wrote it. 
He's dealing with that occasion or with that situation. All of them are like that. Even the general epistles like James and Peter and Jude and, and the, the epistles according to John. They're all according to or written to uh, deal with an occasion or a situation. But when you get to Romans, Romans is so different because it doesn't have any specific situations. And all of the Pauline letters, even his circular letter, Galatians, has a specific situation that he's dealing with. But here in Romans, it seems to be like a majestic letter. It's his, it's his uh, magnum opus, Paul's, Paul, Paul this, this, this letter is used in John Marshall Law School to show you how to do litigation. Um, it's it's a, a great work of literature, Romans. And a lot of men of God got saved reading it that thought that they were saved before. Uh, Martin Luther's one, uh, Augustine of Hippo was the other. And so they read Romans and, and they realize that they're not saved by works, right? And they would never argue, they would never argue that you have to confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, that you have to do something. They wouldn't do that. So we're gonna look at what Paul is talking about. So historical context, when you're dealing with these situations, is very important. I'm gonna give you an example from secular literature of why historical context can illuminate something and give you a totally different mem mem uh, meaning. You all remember um, The Wizard of Oz, right? L. Frank Baum is the guy that wrote The Wizard of Oz and he swears, well he swore up and down when he first wrote it that he was writing it to children. It's a children's fantasy. And that's how we all took it. That's how we interpreted the, the Wizard of Oz. And it's still interpreted that way. However, around the turn of the century, because he did this around 1890, around the turn of the century, there were some things going on politically. And this little school, high school school teacher this high school teacher that gave his class the Wizard of Oz to read for literature, he said that it was a political satire, that, that Baum, through um, this story, is telling, is, he's promoting his political beliefs, right? It's called, it was called populism, that was, that was one of them. And, and what they were saying was, was this, was that we had the gold rush, we had all of that, and, and, and our money, our paper money in the United States is bagged up by our gold. But gold was losing value. How many know that the value of a thing goes up when it's rare, right? Well, the gold rush, it wasn't rare, right? They, yeah, all these people, so the value started to go down. And so, so, um, so what, what uh, bomb, when Bond writes, follow the yellow brick road, He's talking about gold. You follow the yellow big road, what did it lead to? Oz. And what did Oz do? He let them down. He was phony. Oz represented, this teacher says, the government. 
that if you put your, he's telling the people, you put your stock in gold instead of silver, then you're going to be let down in the end. The government is lying to you. Gold is losing its value. You should be putting your money in silver. And that should be our, our standard, silver and not gold. How do you know that? Well, you know the little red shoes that Dorothy clicks? In the story, in the original story, they were silver. Silver was the answer to Dorothy going home. Silver was the answer. That was his political satire. Gives you a whole nother look at the Wizard of Oz, doesn't it? That's why historical context is so important. In this historical context, Nero is about 18 years old. He's been emperor for, for about a year when this letter was written. And he's a madman. He's already planning on how he's going to kill his mother. It's going to take a couple of years, but he's got to get rid of her, right? He kills his wife, his first wife, his second wife. This guy is a madman, right? And I think it's Peter that calls him Satan. It may have been Paul. But my point is, is that when you look at that historical context, and you realize when Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, it takes on a whole new look. Because to say that Jesus is Lord in Rome is to say that the emperor is not. And it's dangerous. And only someone who really believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord will say so. Takes on a new meaning, doesn't it? Because it could cost you something, right? Takes on a new meaning. Okay. So there are several, I promise we're going to get to the text in a second. There are several, um, when I said at first that, that scholars, uh, scholars have about 12 different proposals for the occasion of the writing of Romans. I'm going to give you the two popular ones before we get in. The first popular one. Uh, most popular one is um, that this is a doctrinal treatise. And it just simply means that it's full of doctrine, right? Uh, the doctrine of sin is there. That's the first couple of chapters. And then he kind of ends that with, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then you have the doctrine of salvation. He picks that up in chapter 4, talking about Abraham and how we're saved by faith, right? Abraham, it was counted unto Abraham. Ham is righteousness because he believed, right? And so you have the doctrine of salvation. Then you get to chapter 6, you got the doctrine of sanctification. Then later on, you, you get to the doctrine of predestination and election. And, and, and then when he gets to chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice. What mercies? The first, first 11 chapters. All of the mercies of God that we are not destroyed because we are sinners, the doctrine of sin. That, that God did not have to save us, but he did. It's a work of God. He made us right. He made us right, not ourselves, right? Doctrine of salvation. And then sanctification. So these are the mercies of God, right? And so when we're looking at Romans chapter 10, we're looking at one of the mercies of God. And the very context of it is, is that you can't do nothing to get it. It's one of those mercies of God that's in the first 11 chapters. 
it's the reason why we should respond with giving our, body, giving our lives over to God as a living sacrifice, right? And so Paul, as he develops his argument, there are three things. Mm, I got to go back. I'm, over, I'm jumping ahead of myself. So I said before, first, before that there was one um, of the biggest possibilities that God, scholars say that reason why Paul wrote this, and that's it's a doctrinal treatise. And the reason why that's a weak argument is because he's, he doesn't mention the resurrection like he does in 1 Corinthians 15. If it was a doctrinal treatise, he would have definitely mentioned the resurrection, right? Uh, he, he does, he talks about Christ being raised from the dead, but he would have mentioned it in more detail, like he does these other doctrines, right? Uh, and he would have spoke about the Lord's Supper, and he doesn't. And so that kind of, most scholars say, well, that kind of rules out that possibility. Let's look at the no, another one. And the other one is this, and I believe that this is the reason why he wrote it. It's because he wants to prepare him for his visit. It's just that simple. He wants to, we're going to look at the scripture too. He wants to prepare them for his visit. Now, the scripture says in Romans that he had never been there before. So they didn't know him. And just like today, if you invite a preacher or if a preacher is coming to your town and to your church and he's going to preach, you need to know what he preaches. Right? In some case, when I first started preaching, they wanted my sermon first. I had to send it to them. Guess what, y'all? This is what Paul is doing. He's sending them his sermon that he's been preaching. It's just that simple. And what is it? What is it he's been preaching? If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead, we will, you will be saved. That's what... He's, he's just letting them know what his gospel is. Not, it's a summary. It's not the, the detail. It's just a summary of what his gospel is. But in order to really take a closer look, we're going to dive in finally. <sighs> Thank you for your patience. Okay. So. We're going to discern at least three things. We're going to look at the scripture. Paul specifically says he wanted to accomplish by his letter. First, he wanted to prepare the way for a visit to Rome. So in order to see that, uh, turn over to chapter one real quick. Look at verse 11. Verse 9. As custom with Paul, he always prays for the recipients of his letter. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. 
asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed, watch this, in coming to you. Look at that. For, long, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Turn over to chapter 15. I want to show you something. 15. And show you the second reason why he's um, going to come to them. This church in Rome was a huge church, just like the city. It was a wealthy church as well. So we're in chapter 15, and we're going to look at This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. What is he saying? saying, I need to stop by there and see you all. I want to do that, and I'm going to need some money to help me. So that's his other reason why he wants to go. But watch this. It's also the reason why he prepares them for his arrival. Because ain't nobody going to give you no money if they don't know what you're preaching. It's just that simple. Right? They're good stewards, right? They need to know what you are preaching. And that's what he's sending to them. Third, he sought the prayers of the Romans, specifically prayers that he might be delivered from unbelievers, that the Jerusalem church would welcome the gift he was bringing, and that he might come to Rome in joy. Same chapter, verses 30 through 32. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you, there is that come to you again, with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Okay, so I'm going back to Romans chapter 10. So those, you know, the scripture get itself in the context, when you're, when you're, when you're um, interpreting letters, uh, often the surrounding chapters and context will highlight or illuminate the, the passage that you're looking at, and that does here for us. So when I go back to Romans chapter 10, now I want to give you an argument I want to show you the proofs of why I think we do a misapplication of our text. First, I mentioned the historical context, the reason why he's writing this. He's sending, sending them his bio. 
Then we looked at the surrounding context. But I want you to look at verse 4 in chapter 10. We're going to walk through that, through this now. I'll start at one, actually. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, he's talking about his, Jew, his people who are Jews that are not believers. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So, so here, that's his argument. To, to the first nine chapters, he's, he's arguing uh, against the law of Moses, right? And the righteousness that the Jews are trying to attain through keeping the law, right? And he, he's, he's actually saying, he's actually saying here, he's not saying that the law ends, but he says that that, that attempt at righteousness ends with Christ. That, that, the law, it's, that the law, what it should have done is shown them that they needed a savior. That's what it should have done, right? But they didn't get that. They didn't get it. And so um, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Who is everyone? Everyone, right? He starts this gospel out in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. He's telling you right there what this is all about. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to the who? To the Jew first and then to the Gentile or to the Greek. Right? He'll mention that a couple of more times in this book. He'll mention that. And so um, we have the two ways of righteousness. One that doesn't lead to righteousness at all, and one that leads to righteousness that comes from Christ. Right? Now, So he says, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. So in other words, if you keep one law, you got to keep them all, right? He says, but the righteousness based on faith says, and do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. He's quoting from Deuteronomy, except for the parenthesis. That's the explanation. Or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, watch this, and in your mouth and in your heart. I want you to notice mouth and heart right there. I'm, I'm saying that to you because a rule of thumb is, is that the rep repetition of words like that sometimes means that they're figures of speech. Now that's really important. Because our text says, if you confess with your mouth. Now, what type of figure of speech? Well, there's a figure of speech called the metonity, the metonymy, I'm sorry, tie tongue today, metonymy of exchange. What does that mean, preacher? That means this, that when, your, when you was little and your mama said, bring your behind over here, she did not mean for you to take your behind off and carry it over to her. 
It was a metonymy of exchange. What she meant was bring your body over here because I'm going to whoop your behind. And that could mean your head, anything, right? <laughs> I know in my house it did, right? And so it's a metonymy of exchange. So here, this is what I propose. Because we definitely know the second part of that verse, believe in my heart, is definitely figurative. Paul often uses juxtaposition, which means he uses two concepts or two words next to each other in proximity to make a point. And usually, usually, I keep forgetting about this mic, usually, um, like peanut butter and jelly, if one is literal or one is figurative, the other one usually is too. Mouth and heart. So because we're caught up with they're saying it. We want them to say it with their mouth, right? But what I'm saying to you is that the metonymy of mouth, the exchange, is not mouth but life. If you confess with your life. And the verb that he uses right here, confess, is a verb. You, he, it could be better translated that if you confess and keep on confessing. And keep on confessing, right? He's not just talking about the confession at your baptism. Right? He's not just talking about that, right? That, that if you, watch this, if you are really saved, your life will speak it. The, 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 the word confess is a Greek word. It's called homo, homologosis, homologosis. And it comes from a Greek word, lego. That's the lexical form. So in other words, when you look up that word confess in the Greek, and say you got one of those fancy phones or whatever, and they give you the Greek translation of the word confess. When you see it, it's going to say homologosis. But if you wanted to look up homologosis in your uh, uh, concordance, you won't find it. You have to look up the lexical form. The lexical form is lego. It means I speak. So homologosis means same speech, right? So watch this. It could mean, there are different semantics, it could mean that your words and your life is saying the same thing. Ah, right? That's illuminating, right? Your words and your life needs to be saying the same thing. He's not talking about just a simple confession. Oh, you saved? doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense. And notice this. He writes 13 letters in the New Testament. This is the only time he says that. Don't you know he would have said it again and again if it was a formula? If it was a formula? It's not a formula. It's not. But I want you to Take a look at another word at the beginning of verse 9, that word because. Some of your translations say because. Anybody says that? Because, it says because if you confess. Anybody says that? That is the best translation, the word that. It's a Greek word, hati. It's a preposition, and it's a modifier, and it does all of that. But because denotes that I'm getting ready to explain a reason to you, right? 
That tells you that I'm about to tell you a content. So the reason why that is the best translation for Hadi is because Paul is talking about content, not reason, right? He's talking about the content of his gospel. That's what he's talking about. And so if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved is not a formula. It's the family business for you all to know this, right? It's the family business for you all to know this, that this is not a formula. Give me a second. I stopped by here today to rattle your thinking in regards of in regards to um, the family business and the gospel that we share. Um, how do we make disciples then? How does it supposed to look then? This is what I would say. This is what I would say. That, um, well, well, forget about what I say. Let's see what Paul says. Look at verse 10 again. So after he says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, you would think, I, when I first read that, I, I would, you know, I thought to myself, shouldn't he say believe in the heart first? Right? And then confess with your mouth. But then he turns around and he does it. Right? He does it in verse 10. He says, for with the heart one believes. Right? So he's letting you know the priority. So with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, which is an autonomy for life, one confesses and is saved. Watch this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I have one more point to make on this. I'm not keeping you long today. My other point to make on this is this. Is that that, that term, that phrase at the end of verse 9 and then he mentions it. Uh, in verse 13, um, that phrase, you will be saved. Of course, it's written in future tense. We don't have to be grammar majors to know that. It's written in the future tense. And this is amazing to me because our salvation is already but not yet. So what are you talking about? It's already, but not yet. When, when Jesus came and he said the kingdom of God is at hand, and he did miracles and all those things that he did, it was a touch. It was a taste of the kingdom of God. It was already, well, watch this, but not yet. Because in the kingdom of God, there's not going to be anybody to be healed. Everybody's going to be healed. Right? Everybody who's dead will be raised from the dead in the kingdom of God. So when he came, he gave us a taste. He gave them a taste of the kingdom of God. 
This is what you'll have. Watch this. Watch this. This is really important if you continue to believe. I I'm getting ready to tell you something. Our salvation is secure, but it's not yet. See, watch this. That's why Jesus says stuff for those who endure to the end will be saved. Hmm. See, watch this. That's why when you confess with your life, right? It's already but not yet. You confess with your life. Watch this. It will be seen. God is not a fool. He wants to see if you believe. That's why it can't be instant. That's why it can't be an instant formula. You see that? That's why it can't. Because your salvation is not secure yet. Paul says things like, like, you better make your election and calling sure. That's what he said. See, I know all of us here, we say, I know I'm going to heaven. The work he did is perfect. He did it all. He made us right. But we'll see if you confess and keep on confessing. That's what we need to tell the people that we're witnessing to. Look, not if you confess with your mouth. If you confess and keep on confessing. That if your confession, your confession should cost you something. When Paul said that people could die if they said Jesus was Lord. It's not some formula. And I regret. I know it's going to be blessed that, you know, to see Jesus face to face. But I'm not going to want to hear him tell me, you know, you made some false converts. That's why I stopped by here to tell you that. This is the family business part two. We can change that right now. That's part of the reason why the pews are empty. Because we made false converts. And Jesus said, when the cares of the world came, that seed you planted on that soil, when the cares of the world came, it, it, it choked it out. It choked it out. Confirmation for this sermon is this. Is I had a friend that I used to be in collections with when I was a bill collector. And he and I did a CD together. Uh, he, he, liked, he was in the gospel rap, and I did the vocals on it, me, Real Men Cry. I mean, some of y'all might have heard it years ago. But anyway, he called me. He texted me a couple of days ago, and I sang at his wedding last year. And he texted me a couple of days ago and said, I need to talk to you. And uh, he was one of those, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, right? Preacher. And uh, found out that his wife left him after two months, that it was a scam, that that's what she did, married Christian men and stole their money while it was at work. And he left the faith. And I believe he left the faith because he wasn't, what did John say? They went out from us because they were never really part of us. I believe he left the faith because he had a false confession. A false confession. And now, He's saying all kind of crazy shenanigan doctrines to me that he's believing in. It's insane. 
he's my new Onesimus that I'm going to have to take time out with. But I stopped by here to tell you this is a serious thing, a serious thing. Don't misapply Romans 10, 9, 10, and 13. Don't do a misapplication of it. One more evidence that I want to show you is that the word if, if we confess, it denotes a conditional phrase. There's a condition. It's a conditional phrase. Watch this. It is the grammatical, it's real funky grammatically to try to use a conditional phrase as an imperative. It's not a command because it's a conditional phrase. You will be saved. Watch this. If you confess and keep on confessing because that shows that you believed in your heart. God's not a fool. Amen? Amen. Pastor, that's all I got.